0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: Good morning. I'm Nate Morrow, and I have the pleasure of reading this morning's scripture. It comes from Psalm 2, beginning at verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? But blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in prayer. Oh, gracious Father, I invite your Holy Spirit into this sanctuary this morning, Lord. Uh, the same Spirit that wrote uh, the words I just read, uh, that you would just be upon all of us, Lord, and prepare our hearts to receive, uh, to receive whatever it is you have for us today. And whatever we need today, Lord, not just what we want. Lord, I pray for Scott. Uh, I give you thanks for his leadership. I give you thanks that he is willing to both be bold in speaking the truth and humble enough to sit underneath of it. And Lord, that he just, um, I just pray for him, Lord, as he carries the burden of teaching us your truth. Not what our ears just want to hear, uh, but again, what we need to hear, Lord, that it's about our growth And so, Lord, I just pray a blessing upon him uh, and upon his family and this whole church family, Lord, as you are with us this morning as we gather together in fellowship. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you, Nate. Appreciate that, brother. Um, Yeah, right. Way to go, right, Austin? You going to serve communion with me later on? All right, you and me, bud. Look forward to it. This table right here. Hey, everyone. Uh, We are in our series on the Psalms, and we come to Psalm number two today, and it's what we're calling a royal psalm, uh, but I'll, I'll start this way. Um, in recent weeks, both the New York Times and the Barna Research Group, which are typically two organizations that run in, in fairly different lanes, but both of them put out information uh, in the past couple of weeks about the current state of pastors and burnout. And uh, Barna, who does all kinds of research around churches, uh latest survey indicated uh, to them that 42% of, of American pastors in particular are actively looking to leave the ministry right now. Uh, I'm in the 58%, just, just FYI. I'm not, I'm not among those, but the reason why so many of my pastoral colleagues around this particular country are looking to exit are primarily three. Number one, stress, uh, because they have for two and a half years carried the weight not only of what a church staff is meant to carry, but also the weight of volunteers, because volunteerism uh, more or less dissipated during the pandemic, and it's been a challenging recovery for a lot of pastors in that respect, so stress. And then number two reason is loneliness. Uh, And then the number one reason that tops all of them is pastors are looking to get out because of political division among their congregants, and it's exhausting. And they didn't train in seminary for that sort of thing. So, New York Times, again, very different organization, recently came out with a podcast that was was sent uh, to me by Kristen Dabbs, who attends our our church here, Uh, and it was a, a podcast from the New York Times called The Great Pastor Resignation. And one of the quotes from one of the pastors who was interviewed said this, political partisanship is forming our people more than our sermons are the past two years have revealed some things that we didn't realize were there all along. In other words, the pandemic did not create uh, partisan outrage. It just brought it to the surface and thrust it to the open center. So I have a concern for uh, my pastor friends, and I, I get a text or two or an email or two quite literally every single week, from a pastor who's asking me to give him a reason to stick it out. And I just got one yesterday, and he cited the same three reasons. And it wasn't surprising. But I've also got a pastoral concern, not only for pastors, but for Christians who are more anxious, angry and panicked, than they are joyful because of government and politics. Now, I want to say, before I get into anything else, that it's actually a really good thing to be politically engaged. It's a good thing. Government is actually one of the seven primary spheres of creative, redemptive work that happens in the world vocationally. Uh, politics and government are actually one of the, the emphases that, 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 uh, that, um, that is held by the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work, which is the, the faith and work uh, integration organization that was founded out of our church and now is a part of our church and an arm of our church serving our city, including people in state government and local government and national government, by the way. So we have a senator and a congressman, part of our, part of our community as well. Government is, is, is one of the three spheres also that God established. Government, nuclear family, local church. Those are, the three, those are the three institutions that God himself established for the flourishing of people, places, and things. So Psalm 2 is not a referendum against government. It's not a referendum against leadership and power. It's not a referendum against any of that. But what it does communicate is that at It's very best, government and politics can be a meaningful servant of Christ and his kingdom. But at its worst, government and politics can be a miserable substitute for Christ and his kingdom. And we've got to choose which lane we're going to run in. What do you want? Meaningful servant or miserable substitute? I'll go with with the former instead of the latter, and I hope you will too. So enter the royal psalms, of which... The second psalm is a prototype. The backdrop, this was written by King David, a government leader, uh, and the backdrop is a politically tumultuous season for him. And he points that out as he talks about nations that are raging and kings of the earth setting themselves against the Lord and the Lord's people. And what's remarkable is that with this tumultuous backdrop, God is not the least bit anxious. In fact, it says the opposite. The Lord in heaven, he's laughing. He thinks it's funny. He thinks it's kind of cute and pathetic, all these kings that think they can put themselves in his place and somehow shove down and neutralize the stuff that he's up to in the world. The Lord in heaven laughs. And because the Lord in heaven laughs, the Lord's people can also laugh. And what I want to do is convince you of that uh, through three primary uh, points. First, there's a cosmic conflict going on. Secondly, there's a king and a kingdom that cannot fail. And finally, there's a reign that has only begun. So let's start with the cosmic conflict. Again, verses 1 through 4 nations rage and plot, and scheme, and kings, and rulers set themselves up against the Lord and against his anointed. So this word anointed in this context refers immediately to King David, and also by extension through King David, the people that he represents, the people of God, the nation of Israel. And the New Testament parallels and the present-day parallels of this would include Jesus Christ, the the, the truly anointed one with capital A, capital O, and Christians and his people and those that, that the Bible refers to as a holy nation, a royal priesthood to serve the world under Christ. That's who we are. That's how we're described by the Holy Spirit himself. So, there's this cosmic conflict, and it basically is summarized in this way. You've got entire governments all over the world in every season of history that do what every individual human heart also does, resists God. Resists God. Now, you know, Romans 8 highlights that. It it puts some language to it where it talks about how the natural heart of a human being and, by extension, the natural heart of, of a collective of a party, you could say, of, 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 a, of a kingdom that is an earthly kingdom instead of a heavenly one, the word that Romans 8 uses is hostile and also unsubmissive. It will not submit to God, nor can it, because its, it's, it's heart is injected with the poison of anti-godness and raging lust for power and control and keeping our hands on our own lives rather than recognizing we're not our own. So, so C.S. Lewis says, though, on the other hand, when the light of God awakens a person and then awakens some people and awak- awakens a whole community and then awakens an entire movement around the world called the kingdom of God, C.S. Lewis says the citizens of the heavenly city then become the best citizens of the earthly city. You see this in Jeremiah where the people of Israel are taken into captivity by by Nebuchadnezzar, the violent Nebuchadnezzar, and and Babylon. And the word of God to the people of Israel is, seek the peace and the flourishing of Babylon. Be the best, most life-giving, most neighbor-loving citizens in this nation that has taken you captive. And then the New Testament as well, in the context of Rome where, where Nero was scorching the earth, executing as many of the people of God as he, he possibly could. In that context, Peter, who would later, later be marv- martyred, uh, you know, with, with the authorization of the Roman Caesar, with the, of the Roman emperor, says this to all who align with Jesus Christ as the King of Kings, fear God, honor the King. And that's just another way of saying, because you are connected to the king of all kings, part of what it means to be a Christian in the world is to not speak ill of those who are in leadership. In fact, Romans 13 says, if you speak ill of anyone in leadership, you are speaking ill of God himself who put them in that role. Now, there is a certain kind of resistance, and we see it in the book of Acts, when, and we also see it in the book of Daniel, when... When governing authorities demand that the people of God obey the governing authorities instead of what God has said, they respectfully say, O king, we'd rather be thrown into a furnace or eaten up by a lion than obey you instead of God. And the same thing happens in the book of Acts, where where the governing leaders forbid Peter and the disciples and the others from from preaching the name of Christ, and, and Peter says, "Far be it from us to obey men rather than God." And so there is a certain resistance, but it's always respectful. It's always re- without a retaliating insult. You, know, the tone of cable news did not exist among Christians. It Didn't exist. It was considered sin. Are you still friends? the best citizens of the earthly city are going to be ones who were influenced the most by the heavenly city. But the second thing that's going to happen is you're going to be at certain times at odds with the state, even with leaders and parties that you generally support. This was put on display. We had this uh, public forum at Christ Pres, a high-ranking Democrat and a high-ranking Republican, both right here, uh, were interviewed... Um, was it you, Samantha? Where are you? Did you do that interview? Was that you? Okay, that was Samantha, incredible journalist. And uh, both of them were asked, would you ever consider running for president? And the Democrat said, even if I wanted to, I would never get nominated by the Democratic Party because I'm pro life. And turned to the Republican, uh, and he said, my party probably would never put me forward either because I am in favor of things like everyone having access to health care and the government making sure that that happens. And so here you have two men from different parties who are more like each other than they are like their parties in terms of how they see a flourishing world happening. And both of them, in different ways, departing from the party that they support because of their first allegiance to Jesus, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. So in the American context, every wholehearted Christian is always going to be wrestling with the tension of being too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals at the same time. Every wholehearted Christian follows the whole Christ, the whole Scripture into the whole world or makes that their their true north. That's going to happen. So in the Bible, though, it was more costly. It was a lot more costly for those in Scripture, all the way back to Egypt, where the people of God are made slaves to the Egyptian pharaoh, or Babylon, Assyria, or the New Testament Rome, where people would be thrown, thrown to the lions, tossed in the fire if they obeyed God over the king or the emperor or the empire. You know, just for perspective, I, I, rec- I want to recommend a film for you. It's available for free if you've got Amazon Prime. It's called Silence, and it's based on a book written by Shisako Endo about persecution of Christians in, in Japan that took place uh, in the 18th century. Highly recommend you watch that just to gain perspective to understand that there's no such thing as New Testament level persecution of Christians in America, it's never existed. We get our feelings hurt. Other people get their heads lopped off. And so I want you to understand that so that you'll have it all in perspective that 11 of the 12 disciples were actually martyred because of their faith, just like Jesus was. And in this whole context of, of bloodbath after bloodbath at the hands of tyrannical governments, what does it say about the Lord? The Lord in heaven laughs. He thinks it's silly. All of this love for power and we can laugh too what on earth so, so Walker Percy uh, the great novelist gives a, a meaningful perspective on this he was asked once by somebody why he became a follower of Jesus why he became a Christian and he gave two reasons and the first one was because the Jews still exist and they shouldn't but they do I'll give you the second reason in a minute, but what does that have to do with anything? There's no earthly reason why the Jews should still exist. Pharaoh tried to exterminate them when they escaped through the Red Sea and got exterminated instead. They spent 40 years in the desert with no grocery stores, no clear access to water or food. And then later on, they faced, you know, Herod's genocidal decrees to, to exterminate every boy born in the land. And then Hitler's Holocaust. You know, those of you who've you know, immersed yourselves in, in the beautiful production of The Hiding Place at, at Christ Press Academy's um, uh, uh, theater right across the parking lot in partnership with, with um, The Rabbit Room and Matt Logan Productions and also Jake Speck over here who originally commissioned that play. If you have seen that or if you've read The Hiding Place, you understand these things. The Jews, by all earthly considerations, should have been gone a long time ago, and yet they're here. The same is true of the Christian church. More persecution around the world now than ever in the history of the world, and it's always been so. And yet Jesus' promise stands. I will build my church. The gates of hell will never prevail against it. No weapon fashioned against my people will ever stand. And the entire Bible is written by slaves and exiles and prisoners, you guys. And here we are. Seven billion people in the world and one-third of them follow and worship Jesus Christ today. How is that even possible unless there's a king of kings beyond every king? Unless there's a power above every power, unless uh, unless there's a Lord above and beyond every Lord, that's the micro picture. But there's or macro picture, but there's also a micro picture here. The the history of Christianity is filled with the triumph of individual underdogs. David, the psalmist today, is one of those underdogs. He's the author of this and fifty percent of the Psalms. And David was a young man who grew up with a father wound. And it's illustrated when the prophet Samuel uh, comes to a man named Jesse and says that the Lord has told me that one of your seven sons is, or I'm sorry, one of your sons is going to be the next king. And 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 even though he has seven sons, he brings only six to the prophet. Number seven isn't even a consideration to the father. And the prophet's like, none of these six. Do you have any other sons? And he and he says, if if you take the direct literal translation from the Hebrew. Jesse says, oh, there is still the runt taking care of the sheep. Well, that runt ended up being the king because of God. It also says in the 27th Psalm that David's mother abandoned him also. And there were other betrayals along the way. King Saul, his predecessor, wanted to get rid of him because he was jealous of David, this this rising up-and-comer man of God after the Goliath incident, which you may have heard of it said from that point forward, Saul kept a jealous eye on David, you know, put a hitman on him, put a bunch of hitmen on him. God preserved his life. Later on, David's own son, Absalom, got attracted to the power that his dad had and wanted it for himself, staged a coup, resented him, humiliated him, betrayed him, and somehow from David, that underdog, we now have all of these psalms. We have two whole books of the Bible about his life, first and second Samuel. Jesus calls himself the Son of David. You know, God takes this runt in the eyes of the world, this runt in the eyes of his own father and turns him into this global, formidable, transgenerational force whose words continue to change the world and entire civilizations that's the god we're we're looking at here not to mention joseph elevated from prison to becoming the prime prime minister of egypt or isaiah who experienced nothing but hostility in his lifetime and now all over the world kings and queens listen to world class artists singing handel's messiah to them at Advent time, which is based on Isaiah's prophecy, not to mention that 11 of the 12 disciples were eliminated as martyrs, and and we are basing our lives around their words today. There's a cosmic conflict, but make no mistake, there's a clear winner and a clear loser in that conflict, which brings me second to the king and the kingdom that cannot fail. So, Old Testament, you've got all these power-hungry kings who set themselves against the Lord and His anointed. Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria. And then in the New Testament, you've got Herod and his violent decree against the sons of the innocent. You've got Nero, who, you know, under whom many of the disciples, including the Apostle Paul, were martyred. So William Plummer, who's a, a British uh, politician, government person, and also, um, you know, public intellectual and also a pastor, observes that Of the 30 high ranking Roman officials who distinguished themselves by their zeal to persecute the early Christians, here's what happened to those 30 high ranking Roman officials. One became deranged, one was slain by his own son, two went blind, one drowned, one strangled, one died in brutal captivity, seven died from loathsome diseases and circumstances, three died by suicide, five were assassinated by their own servants, eight were killed in battle or died in prison, and the remainder got immobilizing diseases, which which gives added meaning to words like, the Lord will speak to them in his wrath. He will terrify them in fury, saying... As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. Or as one of my favorite bands, Radiohead, likes to say in their song, Karma Police, this is what you get when you mess with us. It's as if this psalm is saying, this is what you get when you mess with me, when you you mess with my anointed, when you mess with my people. This is what you get. And it sounds mean, maybe, sounds harsh, maybe, but I am a charlatan and completely unfaithful if I don't tell you that Jesus Christ has teeth. He is a lion just as well as a lamb. He is severe just as well as He is kind. He is full of conviction just as well as He is full of compassion. You know, as the Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner says, there is no refuge from the Lord. There is only refuge in the Lord. It's as if God is saying that he is there to save us from himself. The lamb is there to save us from the lion. I mean, he makes makes the, the lion's den, Jesus with teeth makes the lion's den in the book of Daniel look like Mary Poppins, you guys. You know, one of, one of my friends was reflecting in a conversation the other day about how his heart goes out, especially to American senior citizens who are glued to cable news. And he's thinking specifically of those who've got wealth, Who've got family members whose houses are paid for and who have maybe 10, 12 years left, and they are choosing to spend those years anxious and angry and restless over American politics. And he says they, they're, they're miserable when they could be enjoying life, they could be laughing with the Lord in heaven. It's not just seniors, though, you guys. Any Christian who equates non- or anti-Christian government with the defeat of Christ or Christianity has lost their way. He cannot be defeated. And so verse 10 says, be wise, which was the subject of last Sunday's message. Wisdom is being able to see things from God's perspective and to assess and evaluate and analyze things from the way that God sees things. Because our view is limited. Wisdom sees the big picture. Wisdom learns. So this is the second reason Walker Percy gave, and it's also a historical reason for why he became a Christian. Not only did I become a Christian because the Jews still exist, I also became a Christian because the Hittites don't. What? What? Who are the Hittites? Well, like other foes of God, Midian, Assyria, Babylon, the Hittites were powerful, ambitious, aggressive, global forces, and now they're gone. You've heard of the fall of Babylon in the history books. You've heard of the fall of Rome. That was God stuff happening there. That was the teeth of Jesus fulfilling what he promises here to the nations that rage and to kings and queens and people in power who set themselves against the Lord's anointed. And today, people are naming their sons after Joseph, Isaiah, Esther, Mary, the 12 disciples, and they're naming their dogs after Nebuchadnezzar, Nero, Caesar, and Herod. (sighs) I I hope you've gotten the punchline before I have to say it. If you are not with Jesus Christ, I have absolutely no hope to offer you. None. None. Because the words in here that have teeth, those are reserved for those who resist the Lord and who resist His anointed and who are committed to giving His people grief. And it's truth and beauty, grief. Got no hope to offer those who decide they want to do it all outside of Christ and live for personal glory and honor and trample over others in the process in order to get there. But finally, and this is the hope part, remember there's no refuge from the Lord, but there is only refuge in Him, but there is refuge in Him, which points us to a reign that's only begun. Jesus is the king of kings. Rebecca said this in the, the music leading. We, we heard it sung. We sung it. He is the king of all kings. And that word of can, can be replaced with the word over or above or beyond. And so David writes in verse 8 of a heritage. The Lord says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." then again, verse 4, the one who sits in heaven laughs. Who is it that we are told in Scripture is now sitting in heaven? We've only been told that about one person, and that's Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, after he finished his good work, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascending into heaven to be with the Father again, it says that Christ sat down At the right hand of God, where he now always lives, to speak affectionately and fondly and defensively and protectively of the people of God to the Father. There is refuge in him. And mysteriously, he also sits with us, as we will now get to experience here in a moment. Jesus in the same way that he reclined at table at the table with tax collectors, prostitutes, lepers, disciples, people that he accepted and embraced because they felt their need and they asked for him to be the resolution to their need. And he was so glad to come through. He now sits at the table with us. Sitting at the table is a gesture of friendship. It's a welcome into the family. It's a statement that you 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 are not only welcome here, you're adopted. You're part of the family. This is like Thanksgiving. This isn't like, you know, going out to Chipotle. This is, this is like the meal, except every week is a holiday. Every week is a holy day, and we gather around the table together. You know, this table invites us to glance at the world's circumstances and gaze at Jesus. And oftentimes we do the opposite. We're glancing at all the things that, or we're gazing at all the things that stress us out, make make us anxious, make us afraid, make, make us feel like everything's out of control. And we only glance at Jesus a little bit. We snack on him while we're feasting on anxiety. And the Bible is saying, look, put aside the anxiety system, snack on it. In other words, acknowledge it. But don't devour it as if, as if you can do anything about it. Feast on Christ, and you can laugh with the Lord in heaven even now. I have set my king on Zion. That's past tense. It's an idiom Zion is for the church. I have established it. I have set It's past tense. You are already seated in heaven with Christ Ephesians says. But he also says, in the future, I will make the nations your, inheri- your, your heritage, the ends of the earth, your possession. So therefore, verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. He does have teeth, and yet blessed are all. Happy are all. Safe and protected are all who seek refuge in him. Why? Because of what Isaiah says, this is going to be like a little bit of Christmas in July. Isaiah says this, thinking ahead and inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak and to write about who was coming, this King of Kings, Jesus. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will reign. Where will he reign? On David's throne. There's that mention of the runt again. It's not a runt. He'll reign on David's throne, call himself the son of David, and of the increase of his reign and government, there will be no end. One of my predecessors, Dr. Ray Ortland Jr., wrote this about that very passage from Isaiah Jesus will not come back to tweak this problem and that. No, he will return with a massive correction of all systemic evil forever of the increase. Forever ascending, forever enlarging, forever accelerating, forever intensifying, there will never come one moment when we will say, this is the limit. Jesus can't think of anything new. We've seen it all. No. The finite will experience ever more wonderfully the infinite, and every new moment will be better than the last. I mean, imagine yourself growing every day feeling stronger, younger, and smarter than you did the day before forever. That's the kingdom that is described. That's the future kingdom. That's what it means to become you know, an heir and for the nations to be put under your feet, under Jesus. And so, as we transition now to the Lord's Supper, I want to invite you and also myself to, to pay special attention to the words, we call them the words of institution, which are the words that the Apostle Paul uh, gave to ministers to give to the church when we gather around the table. And one of the things that the Apostle Paul says is we remember the Lord's death until he comes. That's what I just read about, the whole Isaiah thing and the commentary about it, until Jesus comes. He is coming. And so we eat and re- we drink in order to strengthen ourselves, body and soul. By literally planting the life of God with the bread and the cup into our bodies and into our souls, so that we can live in hope that the best is yet to come, and His teeth will be gone. There will be no susceptibility to, to the teeth of the Lion of God, because, you know, like C.S. Lewis says of, of Narnia, it will become an everlasting spring. What's that? We'll talk at the table here, bud. I'd love to hear what you got to say to me in just a second. Okay? I'm going to finish inviting everybody to the table. Can you come up here right now? My buddy. Can you join me? All right. This is my buddy, Austin. Can you all give him a hand? So, you want to stand on my right or my left? You want to stand here or you want to stand over here? What's your favorite spot? You want to be right there? Okay. So, so Austin and I are going to serve some people at this table. I want to invite other people to their tables. But Jesus says when he comes, he's going to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And that's what we're going to sing in a minute. But we get to rejoice in it and savor it and take it into our bodies in the meantime. And so let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the bread and the cup. I thank you for people like my friend Austin here who are heirs of everything that you promise in the second psalm. And I thank you that Austin and I and others in here who are connected to Jesus Christ through faith will reign forever. Father, strengthen us in this hope so that we can live well in the here and now and become, as the citizens of heaven, the best citizens on earth that we possibly can. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.